Good morning. Uh, I want to say uh, something by way of introduction about the title uh, for this morning's teaching session, uh, The Final Word on Methodism. Um, <clears throat> I, I assure you, I did not choose that title. That's Walt's title. Uh, however, it may be that we want to think about it as the final word in the sense that those of you who are regular attenders of Kerygma uh, can safely relax. Today is the last Sunday. You're going to have to hear about Methodism for a while. Um, another sense in which it may be appropriate is that um, as this uh, set of uh, titles for uh, the Sundays uh, through the summer uh, indicated, uh, we've already talked about, uh, under Ted Campbell's leadership, matters regarding the sacraments, sacrament of baptism, sacrament of holy communion. Uh, and sometimes people ask questions, well, who gets to decide about baptism? Who gets to decide about holy communion? Who gets to decide who gets admitted to baptism? How much water is to be used in baptism? At what age may you be baptized? Who gets to decide who can preside at a sacrament of Holy Communion? Who gets to decide what are the elements of the sacrament of Holy Communion? Why in the world are Methodists and Baptists and a few Presbyterians out of sync with the rest of Christianity when it comes to the beverage that is used at uh, Holy Communion. <laughs> Who gets to decide that it's grape juice, or as in one congregation that I knew, United Methodist Congregation, where the choir got new robes, but the choir picked out the robes they wanted, and they picked out a lovely beige color. So then they demanded that on Communion Sundays, the choir would receive communion with white grape juice. See, they could have purple grape juice stains on their robes and nobody would ever notice. Who gets to decide? So there's a sense in which the final word on Methodism has to do with the systems of authority in Methodism whereby decisions are made. And that's really uh, what I want to spend uh, time today uh, discussing with you. But in order to get to that, let's not pretend that decision-making systems are somehow new to 21st century church life or 20th century church life. Ever since Christianity began, there's been uh, a problem over who gets to decide. How many of you in your travels have ever been to the city of Ephesus? Oh, great. Uh, a good number of people. So you're familiar, depending on what time may have been uh, your opportunity to travel to Ephesus, more or less of the city has been excavated. But certainly when my wife and I were there, it was just an extraordinary experience uh, to begin at the top of the hill and literally walk down the same street uh, that the Apostle Paul walked and uh, see where the various government offices were and then work our way down the hill to the magnificent ruins of the library and then see the amphitheater uh, and then uh, see the arena where the sporting events were held. It was an amazing place and Ephesus was an extraordinarily rich religious environment. It was a rich economic environment too, um, but it was an extraordinarily rich and diverse environment. Uh, uh, religious environment, and what we know from the text in the scripture uh, about the way that the church was organized is that they were as confused, mixed up, and perplexed in the first century as we were or are. Uh, <clears throat> I remember some years ago having a young man who was telling me that he was going to start a new church. Uh, he was going to be the founding pastor for a new congregation, and he said, proudly. <clears throat> we're not going to have bishops. We're not going to have councils. We're not going to have synods. We're not going to have a diocese. We're going to organize ourselves according to the New Testament model of the church. And I said, really? Which one? <laughs> because they're all over the lot. All right. Listen 
to this from the 19th chapter of the book of Acts. Paul is in Ephesus. While Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the interior regions and came to Ephesus where he found some disciples. He said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you became believers? They replied, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Then he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? They answered, Into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied altogether. There were about 12 of them. He, meaning Paul, <coughs> entered the synagogue and for three months spoke out boldly and argued persuasively about the kingdom of God, when some stubbornly refused to believe and spoke evil of the way before the congregation, he left them, taking the disciples with him, and argued daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that when the handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were brought to the sick, the diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some itinerant Jewish exorcists tried to use the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit said in reply to them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? <laughs> and the man with the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered them all, and so overpowered them that they fled out of the house, naked and wounded. When this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, Everyone was awestruck, and the name of the Lord Jesus was praised. Also, many of those who became believers confessed and disclosed their practices. A number of those who practiced magic collected their books and burned them publicly. When the value of these books was calculated, it was found to come to 50,000 silver coins. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Now, I don't know if that story is familiar to you or if all the details of it were able to be absorbed in that rather quick reading of it, uh, but there are at least a few things that I hope you picked up. For example, I suspect Tim Binkley over here heard the part about burning books <laughs> and said, oh, no, don't do that. Now, I, as a dean heard the part about how much the books were worth. <laughs> and think, burn them? No way. Sell them. And then we'll use the money for scholarships. But there were some other things embedded in those 20 verses in Acts 19. The word Christian. There were Christians in the city of Ephesus, but they didn't believe that there was such a thing as a Holy Spirit because they had never heard there was such a thing as a Holy Spirit. Can you call somebody a Christian who doesn't even know that there is a Holy Spirit and certainly doesn't believe in such a reality? They did in Ephesus, but who has the authority to decide who gets to use the word Christian to identify herself or himself as a believer. How about the word congregation? That word's in Acts 19 too, except it doesn't apply to the Christians. The word congregation in that text applies to the synagogue. It's the Jews who formed the congregation, not the Christians. They weren't a congregation, at least by the language used. Then there's this thing about Paul. Three months, he's in the synagogue, talking to the congregation, and then 
he leaves and goes off to not a church, not a religious institution, but a lecture hall, an academic entity, the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And he's there for two years. And the word of God goes forth and people are converted. And then there's this amazing story of the seven sons of Sceva who figure, <clears throat> we don't know anything about this guy Jesus, we don't know anything about this business of Holy Spirit, but there seems to be a really good gig in casting out demons. So they try this. In the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, the demons should come out. And of course the demons figure out, you don't have any authority. You can't use second-hand authority. So the demons won the battle that day. You can't use the name Jesus or claim the power of Jesus by hearsay, second-hand. So, how and where does authority exist in the church? Well, for purposes of our discussion today, I want to suggest there really are three basic systems of church order or systems by which churches determine how authoritative decisions are made. The first that I want to mention is a hierarchical system, and that's commonly identified with the Roman Catholic Church. The Pope sits atop this vertically structured hierarchical system. The Pope names the bishops. The bishops then run the church in vertical authority underneath the Pope. In the Roman Catholic Church, bishops hold title to the properties in their diocese. Meaning, if a bishop in a declining area of Catholic population, as happens to be true in northeastern Pennsylvania, where my wife and I were raised, the bishop can just declare he's closing three churches. And the people who go to Mass in those three churches are going to go to this other place for Mass. That's just the way the system is structured. It's hierarchical, hierarchical it's vertical. Bishops control church property. They control who gets to be ordained and by what standards. They control church doctrine, what's taught. As a the Roman Catholic Bishop of Nebraska said in an N uh, NPR interview the other day in response to a question, quote, this is not a democracy, end quote. That's the way it is. <clears throat> if you're a woman and you're a Catholic and you feel called to the priesthood, find another church. It's not a democracy. And that's that's fine because they're very clear. This is the way it works. The second uh, example or, or form of a system of church order is a congregational system. And the word congregation really is just a, a very generic term. refers to any gathering of people. And in the religious context or the religious sense or the Christian sense, the congregation determines what its beliefs and doctrines are. The congregation decides how it will organize itself. The congregation decides what its ministerial leadership will be, including who gets to be ordained and what are the educational requirements for ordination. In a congregational system, that little group or large group of people decides. And if you don't like a decision that the congregation made, Go form another one. I can tell you as a Methodist minister, one of the complaints we had was that uh, when uh, Baptists uh, in their congregation had a fight uh, in the community where I was the pastor of the United Methodist Church, it seems that they'd have a fight and they'd have a split, and a few weeks later there were as many people going to each of those Baptist churches that resulted from the split as used to go to the original one. Meanwhile, we were the same size. I never could figure out how that happened. A third system of church order is what uh, we could call a connectional system. In that system, there are entities of various kinds that are all linked together 
but no single entity or office controls any of it. Uh, in a connectional church system, there are groups of people who might be called congregations. There are people who are in educational institutions. There are people who are in healthcare institutions, clinics, hospitals, that kind of thing. <coughs> there are within the church uh, various systems, none of them controlled by any individual office, all of them requiring connections among offices, persons, and positions, uh, whether you're talking about church property, church doctrine, or ordination. The main thing about this summary of the three systems I've identified, hierarchical, congregational, and uh, connectional is there are no such things as pure forms. For example, the Roman Catholic Church is vertically structured in a hierarchical system. That's absolutely true. But the Roman Catholic Church also has a collection of lay orders and clergy orders. For example, Nobody has any doubt that the University of Notre Dame is a Roman Catholic university. But if you recall a couple of years ago when Notre Dame uh, chose to confer an honorary degree on President Barack Obama and invite him to give the commencement address at the University of Notre Dame, the bishop of the Diocese of Indiana, in whose jurisdiction South Bend and Indiana exist, just protested violently, said the invitation to the president should be withdrawn because of his views on abortion, and the president of the university made it very clear. I don't report to you, bishop. I report to the head of the Holy Cross Fathers. They run Notre Dame. Notre Dame is run by an order of priests, not by bishops. So you have a hierarchical system but the orders, and if you've heard about nuns on a bus, you know what I'm talking about. The orders have their own pathway uh, to the Pope, not through the diocesan bishop. There's no pure form in the hierarchical system. There's also no pure form in the congregational system. The Potter's House here in Dallas is clearly an independent congregation, but it's run by a bishop. T.D. Jakes, who got that title apparently because he decided to call himself bishop. <laughs> and in case you have any doubts, the Potter's House is not a democracy. I don't think anybody gets hired on the staff unless Bishop Jakes decides so. They don't take congregational votes there. Well, there's also no pure form of connectionalism. Presbyterians would identify themselves as a connectional church. Every congregation in the Presbyterian church calls its own pastor. But they can't have a call approved unless the presbytery agrees because the presbytery, which is the regional body that uh, relates to all the churches in that geographical territory, the presbytery has a vested interest in certain aspects of every call to a pastor. For instance, the presbytery doesn't want uh, an individual congregation to undercut the salary structure of the presbytery by, giving, uh, by hiring somebody at a cut-rate salary that would lower the average salary for the churches in the presbytery. So they have a connected way of looking at a congregational call. The Episcopal Church, they've got bishops, but bishops in the Episcopal Church have very little control over who becomes the rector of an individual parish. The bishop participates in the process, but in the end, it's the parish, the congregation, that calls its own rector. On the other hand, bishops in the Episcopal Church have almost complete control over who gets to go to seminary and where they get to go. So there are no pure forms. Every one of these systems in some way is a blend or a mix. All right. The Methodist system, 
is a connection. More than anything else, we are a connectional system. I did not misspell that word. That's the way John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, spelled it, with an X instead of a CT. I was just having a little fun with the PowerPoint. But the Methodist connection consists of multiple connections. There's World Methodism. It has 75 to 80 million members. And most of them exist within their own national churches. For example, there's the Methodist Church in Mexico. There's a Methodist Church in South Africa. There's a Methodist Church in Argentina. Methodist Church in Brazil. There's Methodist Church in India. And there is, of all things, because John Wesley came from there, the British Methodist Church. But those entities are basically national church bodies that are not officially connected to the United Methodist Church, which is who we are. Now, United Methodists number about 8 million. So the United Methodist Church is roughly 10% of global Methodism. But the United Methodist Church is itself a global church because there are United Methodists and every, every continent except Antarctica, unless an individual United Methodist scientist have to go there and spend the summer. But um, <clears throat> we are a global church with United, Metho United Methodist churches in every continent except Antarctica. We have United Methodists in Zimbabwe, in Austria, in Poland, in Russia, in the Congo, in the Philippines. We're everywhere. In Latin America, oddly enough, there is only one country where you have United Methodists or members of the United Methodist Church. That's Honduras. If you happen to be visiting Costa Rica, you can worship on Sunday morning in a Methodist church, but it won't be a United Methodist church. If you're in Mexico City, you can go to worship at any one of several Methodist churches, but they won't be United Methodist churches. If you're in Honduras, if the State Department will let you go there, and you worship at a Methodist church, you will be worshiping in a church of the United Methodist Church. Confused yet? Let me make it even more confusing. There are a few places that don't just have a Methodist church or the United Methodist Church. They have both. For example, if you live or happen to be visiting Southern California, and you happen to be a person who speaks Korean, you might want to go to a Methodist service where the service, the liturgy, and the sermon will be in Korean. Well, you can go to one church over here that will be listed perhaps with the initials KMC, Korean Methodist Church. And the service will be in Korean and the sermon will be in Korean except that the minister in that church actually reports to Seoul, South Korea. Or you can go across the street <coughs> to the Korean United Methodist Church, whose pastor is appointed by the bishop in Los Angeles. Let me give you another example. Nigeria. There's a country that has both Methodists and United Methodists. And it may or may not be apparent to all of us gathered here for the Kerygma uh, service today, but we actually participate in that right here in Highland Park United Methodist Church. Uh, Perkins School of Theology has a graduate who often comes to Highland Park. His name is Sunday Onowa. He is a bishop of the Methodist Church in Nigeria, which at last count has 54 bishops. His wife is an ordained deacon in the United Methodist Church. <laughs> and there is a United Methodist Church in Nigeria, and there's one United Methodist bishop. Are you confused even more? It is a remarkable connection that we Methodists have. 
How in the world did we get into this mess? Well, the roots go back to the 18th century when the Methodist movement was founded by John Wesley. Uh, John Wesley discovered something factually true about himself. After he had established, led, developed, built, expanded the Methodist movement, he discovered he wasn't going to live forever. And while he had built, expanded, and developed the Methodist movement under his own jurisdiction, by the way, he built chapels where Methodists could gather for worship. And he personally held title to every one of those chapels. He realized that wasn't going to work. So in the 1760s, he crafted something called a model deed for the ownership of property, which was to be then entrusted to members of boards of trustees who had responsibility for the property. He was creating new methods for the connection. And the one thing that he had to resolve in his own mind was, it was pretty easy in his day. He decided who got to be a Methodist preacher. He decided what the Methodist doctrines were going to be. He decided where Methodist preachers were going to go. He decided in what kinds of buildings would Methodist preachers preach. He even decided that the ideal shape for a church uh, preaching house was an octagonal shape because the line of sight for the preacher was exactly the same to every corner if you were in an octagon. He even believed a baptism font ought to be octagonally shaped. He controlled everything. He decided what Methodist preachers should read. He published something called the Christian Library. When he read a book, he decided which parts of the book should be read by Methodist preachers, so he published edited versions of those books. One of the fun projects I had in my own scholarly endeavor was to look at how John Wesley edited different books written by the great American religious leader, Jonathan Edwards, and how Wesley used his own editing devices to take out offensive parts of the theology in Jonathan Edwards' books. Wesley decided everything, but he knew he wouldn't live forever. So he had to come up with a method. Method. That's where we get the word, by the way. He had to come up with a method for determining who was going to succeed him, who was going to be his successor. Initially, he thought he'd pick a person. But then he hit on this genius idea. John Wesley had uh, some profound convictions about many things, including how is it that God's grace is mediated to the people? And he had this long list of what he called means of grace. And one of them, I mean, besides the expected ones like studying scripture, prayer, receiving communion, and so forth, he had a deep conviction that one of them was in what he called Christian conference. He believed that when Christians talked with, talked to, listened to one another in conference, they weren't just having conversations. They were in an experience where the grace of God was being transmitted to them and where they were encountering through Christian conference the grace of God. So in 1744... He called a meeting, which was known as a conference. When he called that meeting, it was his pattern. He decided who got to come. <laughs> he decided what the agenda would be. He decided what the questions would be uh, that are asked on the agenda. And he decided what the answers were. <laughs> My kind of guy. <laughs> but... He made it very clear that in 1744, when he got this first conference together, that the word conference was not to be defined as a meeting that was held. The word conference was to def be defined as the persons who were present for the meeting. In other words, 
conference as a means of grace was to be understood for Methodists as a body of persons who constitute a community wherein their discussions, debates, experience the grace of God and lead to decisions. So, uh, the first conference, the 1784 con 1744 conference, had as its simple agenda three questions. What to teach? How to teach? What to do? Three basic questions. All right. That was 1744. Forty years later, revolutionary changes were afoot. Obviously, the American Revolution had occurred. Even John Wesley had to admit, as a good British Tory, a conservative, that his side lost the war and the colonists had won. And as a practical matter, he realized it was no longer possible even to maintain the fiction that he could control the Methodist movement from England. So, in 1784, a number of revolutionary changes happened. One, he conceded the point that there was going to have to be indigenous leadership for the Methodists in America. Two, he conceded the point that the Methodists in America were going to be a separate church. So he officially sent a number of documents. One was the for the creation of the Methodist Episcopal Church in the United States of America. That was the official title. The other thing he did was uh, authorize a system whereby an ordained ministry would be created. There were no ordained Methodist preachers before 1784. This process then of revolutionary changes continued. Uh, 24 years after the creation of the church, the Methodists in America decided we have to do what the political system in the country has done. We have to create a constitutional authority. So, in 1808, the first form of a constitution for the Methodist Church was established, and it was established with two poles of leadership. The authority for making decisions, according to this system, would reside in two entities. Remember, we're a connectional system. The two entities would be a superintendency, and the conference. Neither of these entities would be superior to the other. Both would be connected to each other. Now, the word superintendency might not be entirely familiar to all of you, um, but uh, in your spare time, pick up a copy of the Book of Discipline of the United Methodist Church. Look in the current Constitution, Article 19, in the midst of what you will see as the restrictive rules They've existed for 200 years, more or less. Uh, and uh, the restrictive rule in Article 19 says that uh, the conference shall not do away with our system of itinerant general superintendency. Um, so the two poles of leadership were superintendency and conference. Now. As I said, the word superintendent or superintendency might be somewhat unfamiliar. That's partly because beginning in 1786, Francis Asbury and Thomas Koch, who were the first two general superintendents of the Methodist Episcopal Church in the United States of America, they decided they didn't want to call themselves superintendents. They start calling themselves bishops which prompted John Wesley to write a letter to Francis Asbury that went roughly like this. Dear Frank, <laughs> men may call me a knave or a fool, but they will never, by the grace of God, call me a bishop. <laughs> well, it was another battle Wesley lost. Uh, once Asbury and Cook started using the title bishop, it stuck. So even though the poles of leadership in the um, system of church order remained conference and superintendency, functionally, 
those two polls came to be known as uh, conference and episcopacy, or conference and bishops. And here is the way the American structure developed. First part of it is under the episcopacy. It was then understood and is still understood that the episcopacy in the United Methodist Church today, like the episcopacy in Methodism since the 1780s, is collective, meaning all of the people who are bishops share the episcopacy. There is no one bishop who's the head of the other bishops. There is no Methodist pope. We don't even have a presiding bishop the way the Episcopal Church does. The episcopacy, the power of the episcopacy in our structure resides collectively in the bishops. Their responsibilities are to oversee the spiritual and temporal affairs of the church. Oversee. Not micromanage, oversee the spiritual and uh, temporal affairs of the church. They itinerate throughout the connection. Everywhere any bishop goes, that bishop is a bishop. Now, the way our church laws are currently structured, only the bishop of Dallas gets to appoint the preachers within the North Texas Annual Conference. Only the bishop of uh, the California Pacific Conference gets to appoint the members of the California Pacific Conference to their place of service in Southern California. But they have to exercise this appointment authority as a collective act. They preside at conferences, but it's very important to note that they preside. Bishops do not have vote in their annual conference. Bishops ordain. We had an ordination service in uh, Plano uh, during the annual conference, the North Texas Annual Conference session last month. The bishop ordained persons, such as Ogana. But the bishop doesn't decide who gets to be ordained. In fact, the bishop has no vote in deciding who gets to be ordained. The clergy members of the conference decide that. The bishop presides, but doesn't vote. And, and, of course, the bishop appoints preachers and presiding elders, as they were once upon a time called. They're now called district superintendents. The other part of the structure uh, that has been in place all along is conference. But since the founding day, we've used the word conference at multiple levels. So, for example, you have heard me already use the term, and you're familiar perhaps with the term annual conference. Let me go back to that 1744 meeting. An annual conference is not a meeting that occurs once a year. An annual conference is a body of persons who are the members of an entity that is called an annual conference. It's a little confusing because the word annual sounds like a chronological term, once a year, like the 14th annual family reunion. But think of another term from a completely different discipline, light year. The term light year sounds like it refers to a calendar matter or chronology. It doesn't. It's a measurement of distance that physicists use. The term annual conference refers to a membership entity. And if anybody asks you, I, I promised there wasn't going to be a quiz, but if anybody asks you, what is the basic body of the United Methodist Church? The correct answer is the annual conference. And if you don't believe me, you can look it up in the Constitution. It's not the local church. It's not the congregation. The basic body of the United Methodist Church is the annual conference. Because the annual conference decides who gets to be ordained. The annual conference decides who goes to other conferences as delegates. The second uh, reference, the general conference, meets every four years. It is the legislative body for the whole denomination. It passes church laws. When the original conferences were meeting, they took minutes. And if you go back to the 1700s, you'll see minutes of late conversations. That was the original language. Now we call it the Book of Discipline. 
And by the way, I have an 1852 discipline in my office over at Perkins. It will fit in this pocket. <laughs> uh, one of my mentors in ministry said if he could do anything he wanted, he'd take the book of discipline and rip it in half. But he never told us which half he would keep. <laughs> The General Conference writes the laws of the church. Then there are district conferences. And then there are quarterly conferences. Now, why do quarterly conferences matter? Okay, here's where the, te not a quiz, but here's where you're going to take the eye test. <laughs> All right? Now, let me tell you what this thing is. It, uh, it was published in a, this book by D. Andrews, a uh, scholar at Princeton University. Uh, she uh, published that book in the year 2000. Uh, she found this chart in the New York Public Library. It dates from about 1818. It's not absolutely certain what the date is. I know you can't read the words from there, but let me tell you what this thing is. It's the organizational chart for the Methodist Episcopal Church in the United States of America from about 1818, first couple decades of the 19th century. It is deliberately intended to resemble a perpetual motion machine. Every one of these wheels, they're not really circles, they're wheels, they intersect with one another. So that uh, up at the top, if you could read it, the general conference revolves, that's what it says, the general conference revolves every four years. The annual conference is the next one down, revolves every year. The district revolves quarterly. The circuits revolve monthly and so forth, all the way through. That was the way the church was organized, and that's how decisions were made in the first uh, couple of decades of the 19th century. Uh, <clears throat> that organizational chart is no longer the organizational chart of the United Methodist Church. But maybe we'd be better off if it were. All right. Because within our system, there are built-in conflicts. Remember I told you the General Conference writes the law of the church. And it does. But one conflict is overriding the law versus implementing the law. Example. Up until 1968, Anybody who wanted to be an ordained minister in the Methodist Church had to sign a statement promising not to consume beverage, alcohol, or to use tobacco. That was an absolute law of the church. Unless you were going to be ordained in North Carolina, Virginia, or Kentucky. <laughs> Basically, they said, yeah, that's the law of the church. We're not enforcing that one here. <laughs> and let me go, go to a similar but more currently sensitive topic. The law of the church is absolutely clear. General Conference has adopted it. No self-avowed practicing homosexual may be ordained or appointed to the ministry of the United Methodist Church. Absolute law of the church except in the California-Nevada conference, which is the Bay Area-San Francisco, basically they say, yeah, that's the law of the church. We're ignoring it. We Methodists have always done that. Always. Um, <clears throat> other conflicts in the system exist between the general conference and the episcopacy. It used to be that the bishops were elected by the general conference. Then the General Conference passed laws uh, governing the behavior of bishops. The bishops said, wait a minute. We're in a separate constitutional entity. You can write some laws for how we're going to be elected, but you can't control everything about us. In the 1840s, celebrated case came to light. A Methodist bishop named James O. Andrew who had been previously married and widowed, married a woman who had been previously married and widowed. She inherited, loosely speaking, inherited the ownership of slaves. Once they got married, Bishop Andrew, her new husband, now became a slave owner. The question was, can a Methodist bishop own slaves? Well, the law of the church was absolutely clear. 
No. No Methodists should own slaves. The question was, who gets to enforce that law? Can the General Conference enforce it? Or do the bishops themselves have to enforce it? The result was that at the General Conference in 1844, the longest session of a General Conference ever held, 35 days in New York City, what they did was work out the Articles of Separation. Have you ever wondered why somewhere in the old materials concerning Highland Park, it says this church was established as a church of the Methodist Episcopal Church South? It's because we were on that side of the debate that went back to 1844. Now, in 1939, the separated pieces were reunited. But uh, in this constitutional reunion, there were a couple of things that changed. One was, in the mid-1930s, the southern churches, as reunion was approaching, and it was clear that reunion was going to happen, in the 1930s, the southern churches, who numerically, this is hard to believe now in 2012, southern churches were numerically much smaller. Methodism in the south was uh, many fewer members than Methodism in the north. Methodists in the south were afraid that these big northern Methodists were going to do to the church just what they'd done in the 1860s in the war between the states. They were going to swallow us up. We weren't going to let that happen. We, weren't gonna, we in the South weren't going to let Northern Methodists in their conference overrun us in our episcopacy. So in the middle 30s, 1930s, the Methodist Episcopal Church South created something new that had never existed before. They created a judicial council, a judiciary, as a third constitutional entity. And as the discussion moved toward reunion, they insisted that a judiciary be part of of the constitutional order for the church as a result of a reunion. They did another thing. They wanted to make sure that it would never happen that a black bishop would have authority over a white church. So they created a new layer of conference. Remember, there's general, annual, Char uh, quarterly, district, and so forth, they created a new one in between general conference and annual conference called jurisdictional conference. In other parts of the world, it's known as a central conference. But in the United States, there were six jurisdictional conferences created. Five of them were regional, northeast, southeast, north central, south central, and western. The sixth was called the central jurisdiction, and it was for all the black churches all over the United States. If you were to go to Washington, D.C., up until 1968, and go to the neighborhood in Washington, D.C. that is near where what now exists as the Washington Convention Center, you'd find three Methodist congregations, Mount Vernon Place, Asbury, and Foundry. Foundry Methodist Church was the Northern Methodist Church. Mount Vernon Place was the Southern Methodist Church. Asbury was the black Methodist church. They're all within sight of each other, but they were supervised by entirely separate jurisdictions. That central jurisdiction, which essentially was the racial segregation of Methodism, did not end until 1968. When we did away with the central jurisdiction and simply folded all the black churches into the five regional jurisdictions. Here's another thing. I have not yet, at least by intention, used the phrase local church. That's because there was no such phrase in Methodism until the 1920s. That's when we started using it. The word congregation didn't show up. So how in the world do we connect the connection? Well, my view is we're still struggling with the same three questions that Mr. Wesley asked in 1744. What to teach? What should be our doctrines and our practices? What ought to happen in communion? How to teach? By whom? With what authority? Who gets to be ordained? Why is it the degree from Perkins School of Theology will allow one to move through the process to ordination, but a degree from Dallas Theological Seminary will not? There are very, very, very good reasons for that. But who gets to decide? And the final question is, what to do? 
what is appropriate behavior for Methodists? How ought we to be engaged in the world? Those abiding church questions are terribly important because fundamentally we come down to the issue, what's the business of the church? Is it to keep our operation going or is it to transform the world? A couple of you have asked me, and I'm at the point where I've got to quit, but I'm going to take one more minute. A couple of you have asked me if I'm going to talk about the bishop, <laughs> meaning our bishop. If your question is what's going to happen with our bishop who publicly announced he was going to retire and then publicly announced he wasn't going to retire, I can tell you that in my responsibility as the president of the council of the judicial council I am not permitted to discuss the details of a case that is pending before the judicial council. Think of the judicial council as the supreme court of the church. Think of the president of the judicial council as the chief justice. John Roberts got in enough trouble saying what he said Imagine if he'd spoken about it before he wrote the decision. Um, there is a process described in the Book of Discipline that will be used to uh, care for the questions that have been raised by our bishop and by others who have authority over him. Remember, it's a connection. Um, and those are the realities of church life in United Methodism. Who gets to be the senior minister of Holland Park United Methodist Church when the former senior minister, or the soon-to-be former senior minister, announces his retirement? That's a question. There is a process. We're a connection. It's time for us to quit. <laughs> but I, I tell you, we've been doing this for 260, almost 70 years, and we're going to keep doing it for a few hundred more, answering John Wesley's questions. What to teach, how to teach, what to do. We're going to sing. <laughs>